Hi, it's Kim and Phil with you, about to explore the world's largest island, impossible to get around by road and almost entirely covered in ice. Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Phil, where are we off to? Greenland, the most sparsely populated place on Earth, would you believe? Very difficult to get to and, as you said, difficult to get around with virtually no roads. It's the definition of isolated. Now, a word of warning before we start. In this episode, we're going off the beaten path, as it's obvious, so far off the beaten path, that we end up discussing some aspects of travel that may not be covered by World Nomads insurance policies. Discussing those activities here is not an endorsement, nor are we recommending that uh, they are right for everybody. You should know that some World Nomads plans cannot cover activities in Greenland or generally above the Arctic Circle, wherever. Uh, Restrictions or exclusions may apply to cover, meaning it's not covered. For example, cover for mountain biking is only available when adventure sport or a plan covering mountain biking is selected, so check that. As I said, trips above the Arctic Circle may be excluded or restricted from coverage. And mountain biking, by the way, is excluded from coverage for all of our Brazilian residents. That said, (laughs) sit back, relax and enjoy. Exactly. (laughs) Now, in this episode, we will explore Inuit culture, find out about a travel blogger's life-changing experience and what it's like to kayak among giant sheets of ice. But our first guest is Chris Winter. He's the owner of Big Mountain Bike Adventures based in Whistler, Canada, and he's just launched a mountain biking trip in Greenland inspired by his photographer friend, Ben Hager. What are you laughing at me I'm for? I'm just at my insurance coverage alarms are going off right now. <laughs> Who solo traversed the route. It's approximately a 200 kilometre trail and it's, you know, all self-supported, very remote. And he did this on his own. And, uh, and then, you know, we spoke about it and I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a tour operator, a mountain bike tour operator and have been for almost 20 years. And I, you know, thought that it was a, an interesting, you know, idea to go there with a, you know, with a small group of people and consider launching a, you know, a, a guided trip, uh, the first ever actually in Greenland. So, yeah, so it was Ben's, uh, you know, initial reconnaissance trip. And then we, you know, he was the very first person to have ever mountain biked in Greenland. There have been, uh, you know, people going there in the wintertime and, uh, and snow biking. But uh, in terms of, you know, traditional mountain biking, he was the first. And, uh, and then we went over this past September a few months ago. Uh, with a group of five and checked it out. I, I can imagine that there's a fair bit of logistics involved in um, making sure this is a safe journey as well. Yeah, it's um, it's truly, you know, I've been, I've been in this business for almost 20 years. Uh, I've never, you know, never been to such a remote destination as, as Greenland. And, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those trips that, you know, it, it's, it's an adventure, it's a trip, but it's really, you know, truly an expedition where you need to plan for, uh, you know, for possibilities that where things could go from comfortable and fairly exposed to, you know, to very exposed quickly, you know, if you had a, yeah. uh, you know, if the weather turned or, or an injury or even, a, you know, a simple mechanical problem with your bike, you know, and getting somebody evacuated in that part of the world is, you know, is, a, is, is quite an ordeal. So, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely required some very careful planning and, you know, the right group of people that, that need to come together to do this trip. 
It looks amazing. I like the downhill bit the the most. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no doubt. 250Ks, it's not easy. There are some challenging aspects to it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's true. And it's it's a bike packing trip also, and um, which is kind of a, you know, an emerging style of mountain biking uh, that's become quite popular in, you know, in recent years. And and basically, you know, it's like going on a hiking trip, but with your mountain bike, where you're, you know, you've got very, very lightweight setup that's that's fixed onto your bike. So they've developed, you know, really cool bags that fit onto your bike in such a way that don't inhibit, uh, you know, the 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 rider from from pedaling and maneuvering the bike. So it's not like you know traditional panniers, but these are small bags that kind of fit in various places on your bike. And as I said, it has to be very, very lightweight, light, light, lightweight. They've developed tents specifically for bike, bike packing. And so you're, you know, you're riding, you're pushing your bike, uh, you know, from point to point in camping during the night. So it's, um, it's really, you know, definitely an acquired kind of experience, not for everyone. Yeah, hang on, lightweight and cold. They don't seem to yeah. go together to me. I'd be no, like- that's, oh yeah, you're 100% correct. Like I... You know, I I consider myself to be someone that's you know experienced quite a few difficult situations and and you know hardships and and I you know I, I love I love being out in in in, in the elements, um, but on this trip I was uh, you're 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 exactly correct where you know you need to pack as lightly as possible you know almost that kind of scenario where you cut your toothbrush you know to shave a few grams uh, type of thing and and your food everything has to be really calculated every calorie. Um, but you know, when we'd arrived to camp, so you'd been riding, you know, approximately eight to 10 hours a day and you pull into a, you know, the place where you're going to camp for the night. And then all of a sudden, you know, your body is cooling down and the temperature is cooling down considerably. And, uh, the nights that we were, you know, there, you're, I was basically in every single layer of clothing that I had in my sleeping bag while sleeping. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a little bit you know, was on the verge of being like, okay, this is a little bit almost, you know, very exposed where you know that if you've got every single layer on of clothing in your sleeping bag, uh, through the night that, um, you know, there's no margin, there's very little margin for, uh, you know, for, for comfort, let's say. I, you say you're riding okay. eight to 10 hours a day, but that must be because you have to keep stopping and looking at the amazing views. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing place really. I mean, the Arctic is, is unique and, um, you know, I just appreciated just the vast remote nature, uh, of Greenland and just, you know, there wasn't, you'd stop, stop riding and look around and it was, you know, completely dead silent. You know, we saw reindeer, a couple of eagles, these Greenlandic eagles would come and check us out. And then, um, that was, that was pretty much it in terms of wildlife and, you know, just a few other hikers, you know, here and there that we, we would encounter. I had that feeling we all did where you're just so, so remote and so exposed to the elements that it was, you know, a little unnerving at times where you felt like, you know, it was kind of another level of, uh, of exposure being in Greenland but very cool and, you know, memorable. That's for sure. We had a spot device that allowed us to send a text if we, you know, in an emergency. Um, you know, I find when you're, when you go to places like, like Greenland, 
that haven't seen a lot of tourism, you're, um, you gain this kind of really deeper appreciation for nature uh, because it seems like the planet is becoming, you know, more traveled and places are more busier than they've ever been. And so to go to a place that has few humans is, is quite, uh, quite special. And you really feel like you want to, you know, do your best to protect Greenland, of course, and then everywhere else that you go. We are essentially a travel insurance company at the end. And I, yes. I want to ask you some questions about how you did some preparations because, you know, in providing travel insurance in such a remote location, we've got some problems. As you say, it's hard to get somebody evacuated. It's expensive. There's a problem for us because we can't provide the service that we like to promise that we can because it's yes. just impossible because it just doesn't exist. For that reason, we don't sell policies to North Korea because we can't do our job there. Did you have any special, you know, resources? Did you, you know, hook up with a uh, evacuation company? How did you organize that? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question because we're, you know, we're of course boldly going to be selling, uh, you know, packages to to Greenland to to the to those that have the experience and the uh, the ability. First and foremost, um, if we needed to be evacuated, we would have to be calling in, you know, a helicopter from from Nook which is the, you know, the capital, it's a horribly expensive operation. You know, we just are very, you know, transparent, of course, with participants in that if, if it's, if it's required, you know, it's something that your one, one is going to have to, uh, you know, to foot the bill for, obviously we do, we do have the, you know, the contact in place if it was needed. And, uh, but we, we do everything we possibly can to, to avoid, you know, having to get an, ev- uh, an evacuation. So what was the arrangement with you made with the people? It's like, sorry, you're going you're to have to pay for the chopper yourself? Correct. Yeah. It's, wow. uh, I mean, there's no other. Yeah. <laughs> that would make you ride carefully. I agree. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, um, it, it's, it's like no, no other trip that we've ever, you know, we've ever embarked on where, you know, the fine print is, that's basically what it says. The participant is on the hook. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's so the it's way almost, around it, Phil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's right. Yeah. I, and I think that's really sensible as well, you know, rather than people just assuming that they're going to be covered for everything. They are not having a yeah. proper look at what it is. So you know, I applaud that. Well done. It, it really comes down to preparing participants as well as possible with every, you know, eventuality or possibility that could could occur. It's, it's definitely a difficult trip. Things can go from challenging to very challenging, depending on uh, just on the weather. Thank you, Chris. And we will be sure to share a link to the trip and a video that, as you said, Phil, shows off that show-stopping scenery. I know. It's so colourful. It's beautiful, isn't yeah. it? Uh, Cassandra Brooklyn, she runs the site Escaping NY, Escaping New York, and she had a life-changing experience in Greenland. So I joined an expedition cruise. I went on the Adventure Canada expedition cruise from Greenland down the eastern coast of Canada, like wild Labrador, and then ending in Newfoundland. So I flew in and then took this big boat down the shore, and that's what took me there. So was it something that was on your list of things to do? Because yes, it's a fairly remote definitely. place. Yeah. And definitely, why? yeah. I went to Iceland three years ago and then flying over Iceland, coming back to New York City, we flew over Greenland. I just looked down like, I was just so intrigued by it. You know, I'd heard the name before. I'd heard the country name. I'd never really heard about the country. I had never known anybody to visit there. And I'm always intrigued by a place where nobody I know has ever visited. It's, it's intriguing when, when and there's a place that you haven't really heard much about. And, and for me, that was Greenland. What's Greenland like? Is it green? 
<laughs> or is that the worst question anyone could ask? No, it's not. Like, <laughs> it's not as green as I thought it would be, especially at the time of year I was going. So I've heard different stories about where the name Greenland comes from, but one of the stories is that the folks that first arrived and quote-unquote discovered it, even though there were already people there, it was green. It must have been summertime, and so they called it Greenland. I'm not sure if that's actually the case. I've heard different stories. Uh, But I was visiting in the fall, which... It's not green at that point. Everything was white. It was also kind of gray. I happened to be there during several days of, you know, blustery days. The first day uh, we arrived, it was bright blue skies, and we were um, kayaking around some glaciers. And then when we got to Nuke, it was uh, very cloudy out, and it, it, it wasn't particularly green, uh, but I'm sure it would be in the summertime. So what, what's it like? What's there? What is it there? Tell us. There's a whole lot of ice. There's a lot of of glaciers. Uh, Greenland has the largest national park in the world. And I didn't visit this, but if you look at if you look at the map of Greenland, like the whole world, usually you know things are are green if it represents a country, whether the country is green or not, it typically represents on the map. And Greenland has this massive section of white in the middle of it, representing, you know, this glacier and this ice and and this national park falls in that area. And so much of the country is completely inaccessible. So people who live there who want to visit other villages, they can't, they can't drive there. There are no roads that go there. Uh, So they have to themselves fly or, you know, catch a, catch a ride on a boat. <laughs> and so I was honestly, I was kind of surprised. I'm like, people are moving to, to Greenland. Uh, a lot of mostly, mostly Europeans, uh, but you know, some people are moving to Greenland for job opportunities. So apart from the fact that if you wanted to go to visit other, other villages, you would have to do it by plane or by boat. Obviously, mm-hmm. if it's attracting expats, there must be some sort of social life that happens. Yeah, there's definitely social life. They have they have a really wonderful museum and cultural center there that puts on a lot of events. In in Nuuk, in the capital, the cultural center is also the movie theater. And when I was visiting, it was hosting uh, an international film festival, and they show modern films you know, mainstream films as well, but they were hosting an international film festival that was focusing on indigenous people and culture and rights and awareness with films around the world. And so a lot of people were coming there to go to these films. There were also live music performances and theatrical performances at this cultural center that seemed to draw in, you know, some of everybody from the town. And there's also some, you know, some restaurants and some bars in the evening, but it's, I wouldn't call it like a hot spot, you know, a nightlife mecca by any means. You had a particularly great experience in Greenland. In fact, I think you told me it was life-changing. It really was. I mean, you know me a bit. I've been on this podcast before. I'm... I'm a fairly talkative person. I'm not a quiet person. I'm fairly type A personality. And silence has never been my thing. You know, I really like to talk probably more than I like to listen. <laughs> I don't always necessarily admit that. And when I was in Greenland and I was learning about Inuit culture and meeting Inuit people, silence was a big part of that. Adventure Canada, who was, you know, who organized the expedition cruise that I was on, uh, Adventure Canada has you know, had over a dozen Inuit staff as their team members and leading, leading uh, the trip. And several of them gave presentations. And I kept hearing how 
Inuit people are shy, how they're quiet, how they enjoy silence. And it was, it was more than just being shy. It was that they actually enjoy being silent. And I was meeting people who were telling me, you know, even if there's a dozen people in the room, even if I have 15 family members with me in the house, like sometimes we just sit there. We have dinner and we just sit there in silence and we enjoy each other's company. We enjoy having them around us, but we don't feel the need to speak. But it's not this awkward silence that is usually the case for uh, many Westerners. <laughs> A lot of people in my social circles, it's kind of awkward if nobody's saying anything. But I was finding that that silence was preferred and it was, and it was too taxing to have all that commentary and banter during meals or in any, in any setting. So I start, I, I just stopped talking, obviously, that didn't last forever, but I just, I stopped talking so much and listening more and, and truly listening and not, and not just pausing to think about what I want to say next. Have you taken that back to, to New York? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's obviously, you, you've heard me talking in this conversation. It's, it's not that I'm, I've stopped speaking altogether, but I've become more thoughtful and I catch myself. I catch myself many times, you know, still talking too much, interrupting too much, thinking about myself too much. Absolutely. But I'm so much more aware of it. Would you recommend Greenland as a destination now that you've experienced it? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back. And it, so I was in like the Southwest, but there's, which is where the capital is. But if you go in the South, I've also heard there's like some really nice hiking and you can hike in between these uh, these cities and it's, it's unguided, but they're like, yeah, you just kind of hike and you show up at somebody's house. You'll find it. Usually you're not lost more than a day and then you'll find someone, which I just really love this relaxed approach and like, yeah, people will help you. And then in the East, there's also really nice hiking. And I've heard there's a lot of day trips to Greenland, which I find really interesting to go to a country for a day trip. Uh, but I've heard there's a lot of Americans doing day trips to Greenland from Iceland to do hiking. So I'd like to go back and I'd like to explore uh, different parts of it. I'd like to go in the summer hoping to find more greenery. <laughs> I love her laugh, Phil. Any, yep. Anyone with a good laugh <laughs> has got me. Yep. Cedar Swan runs that uh, Venture Canada and the trip that Cassandra was talking about. But, yep. Phil, why, why is the word cruise almost a dirty word? Why am I getting all the bad news today? <laughs> all right. Uh, look, because it conjures up those images of those, you know, ever bigger cruise ships which contribute to over-tourism in many places. And there are, you know, obviously questions about the environmental impact of what powers those ships and what waste they create. And it's contrary to our belief at World Nomads that small travel is a great benefit to the world. As we like to say, leave only footprints and not a massive ship's wake behind you. Cedar absolutely gets that. Yeah, we're really trying. Um, I mean, we're undergoing, I mean, we always try and use the term expedition cruise because I do think, um, especially now that this type of travel has become a little bit more well known to um, the general public. We find if we say an expedition, people get a different impression in the mind that in their mind that you know they might be going out traveling by dog sled and and um, you know hiking for days on end and you know sleeping in a tent, um, which is not what we're doing when we're up in the Arctic. But it's also not cruising. I mean, yeah. I find. Um, Cruising is often interpreted it, like it's all about the yeah. ship and it's yeah. all about the, um, you know, the amenities and the, the entertainment. So we like to use expedition cruising because we hope that that conveys the opportunity for adventure, the idea you're getting off the 
beaten path, um, but we're doing it by small, by small ships. So, you know, really what we're offering is soft adventure. And what are the challenges with reducing your carbon footprint and things and how are you managing that? Yeah, well, right now we're actually undergoing a carbon audit. So from here, I mean, that's our first step in the process. I mean, we've always been very socially minded um, and have really tried to do our best to make um, meaningful, impactful um, contributions and decisions sort of with regards to the people in the places that we're visiting and the societies that we're that we're visiting. Um, but so just it was actually just in August um, that we undertook the, the start of our carbon um, audit. So we'll have that complete um, by the end of January. And from then from that point, um, you know, we'll we'll develop a three year uh, carbon redu- reduction strategy. Pardon me. Um, and uh, and so really, it'll be difficult for me to comment on exactly what we're doing until we get that audit and work through that plan. Um, but I mean, we're doing basic uh, type of uh, things like really trying to reduce our garbage when we're on board. Um, we offer carb- we we offer carbon offsets for our guests, um, and we cover it for our our own expedition staff. Um, yeah, so a lot of it is around waste reduction, trying to invest in regenerative agricultural practices. Sort of when we are giving back to communities and to organizations, ones that are really looking to have long-term impact and rehabilitation of sort of the land. Um, and, and we really see that as a way that the way that we'd like to go forward with looking at um, the offsets from our business. Way back in episode two of this podcast, when we spoke about mm-hmm. Canada, we spoke to a British journalist, a fellow called Mike Carter, who wrote an article about Inuit-led adventure in Canada and how, mm-hmm. and his argument was that, you know, Canada tourism has kind of got it wrong because they're like going, we've got these fabulous cities and they're a lot like Europe. And if people want mm-hmm. a European city, they're going to go to Europe. And what mm-hmm. he said, what he said where the, you know, the, the future of tourism in Canada was, was in Inuit-led um, tourism and, and going into those communities and that whole sort of, as you talk about there, about the whole giving back thing and sort of helping bolster these these communities as well. Mm-hmm. You agree with him there? It's the way of the future? Well, um, I mean, Canada is such a huge uh, place that I would say that, you know, that, that would be one way forward. I certainly wouldn't say that it's um, – the way forward um, for Canada in terms of as, as a sole path. And, and, you know, it's a very sensitive area. So I don't actually believe that Canada and many of the communities in the north would want to see the types of numbers that we might see. I live just outside of Toronto. So in a city called Mississauga, which has got just over or just around a million people, I don't believe that the communities that are in the north are targeting to start to see, you know, they don't necessarily want to see those types of numbers and they want to see the types of tourists um, and visitors coming as ones that are really looking to experience and looking to understand and coming with an open heart and open mind. I would suggest that um, in Canada, the opportunity for Indigenous tourism in general is probably one of the one of the best ways forward in terms of that it's very underdeveloped. Um, there's It's an underdeveloped product. Not very many people are doing it. And, and there's a lot of interest and the Canadian government is investing a lot of money, um, as are the community, Indigenous communities all across Canada are really seeing this as an opportunity, which is um, incredibly exciting. And uh, so 
not only is it underdeveloped, so there's a lot of um, opportunity from that perspective, but it also has um, the potential to have a lot of really positive and meaningful impact, which I think is what so many tourists and visitors today really want to to know and to reaffirm their own value system that my visit here um, actually has had a positive effect on this place that I'm going to. You know, they, they very much want it to be a win-win for both sides. And so I really feel strongly in Canada that um, there's so many opportunities and it's, and it's excellent because, um, you know, many of the Indigenous communities have incredible potential for product and, um, and limited economic opportunity right now. So it can be a win in so many ways. Well, that's what Mike was talking about as yeah. well. Now, you as a company are committed to uplifting the voices of Inuit people. How are you doing that? Well, I mean, first and foremost, we hire Inuit. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's really what we aim to do. So whenever we're in a, a, a northern region or we're on a tour throughout Inuit Nunanga, which is um, the term we use for sort of an Inuit homeland. We have four different Inuit regions in Canada. Um, you know, we always try to hire as many local people as we possibly can. So on average, if we're uh, in the Arctic and our team might be, you know, numbering somewhere in the range of 28 to, let's say, 32 or 33, um, you know, we'd be looking at having uh, about a third of that staff um, as Inuit that are on board in, in, in a number of different capacities. So everything from cultural interpreters, but also people that might not have a background in tourism necessarily. So, you know, your hunters that can actually just talk about their direct experiences on the land, the changes that they're seeing um, happening on the tundra as and out on the ice. And, you know, we try and really balance that and uplift that perspective to complement um, the academic and the scientific perspective that we're getting, um, you know, perhaps from um, the other disciplines that are traveling with us. Uh, so in addition to, as I mentioned, sort of cultural interpreters, um, hunters, uh, elders within communities, um, opportunities for youth to be able to sort of get some career development training, and, and then also just the people that really help um, make the trips run, our Zodiac drivers, our bear monitors that keep everybody safe. So so number one in that strategy is, is direct employment. Uh, and then also, just as a company, we make it a point to not speak on behalf of Inuit. Um, nobody knows their culture and their land better than them. And I think it's sometimes a very uh, common trait or a learned behavior that, um, you know, a more dominant culture tends to speak on behalf, even with the best of intentions, uh, you know, on top uh, over or on top of another. And, um, you know, we're really making a very conscious effort to provide uh, that space um, for the voice to be heard in whatever way it needs to come out because every trip is different too. You know, the dynamics of the different staff that are on board and the different guests that are on board and every guest comes with a different background. And, you know, sometimes there's a real interest in, you know, in hunting and in sealing and the seal skin bands and how that's affecting. And other times it's all around climate and, you know, so it's the conversations are really very organic and driven by how all of the different parties are relating to each other. Thank you, Cedar. Just um, fun fact, did you mm. know that over-tourism has been trademarked? 
No. In 2016. Really? So do we need to pay somebody I now because we've said it about It'd five be a times. full-time job, wouldn't it? It's mentioned all the time. This was in 2016. It was trademark. Really? Yeah. Here's a way to see if we can find out who it is. Over tourism, over tourism, over tourism. <laughs> Google will pick that up. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. Now, where were we at? Um, I'll give a link to Adventure Canada in show notes. But, okay. Phil, over to you because you've got travel news. Okay. Look, as you're probably aware, World Nomads, we believe that as travellers, we've got a responsibility to give back, which is why we founded the Footprints Program, which is when you buy travel insurance with us, you can choose to add a small micro donation to your policy price to help fund a specific community development project, and you sort of get a bit of a choice with that as well. Now, the Footprints Network has just completed its 200th project. Yay! Yay! It was the Sea Turtle Conservancy to ensure the survival of sea turtles within the Caribbean. Uh, one of the project activities was the promotion of sea turtle ecotourism as an alternative to the harvesting of sea turtles as a way to build sustainable programs that provide revenue for local communities. And if you want to see that in action, you should watch the video we made at the project. Uh, we'll put a link to that in show notes so you can see it. And um, humble brag, by the way, the video was recently named as a finalist in the Shorty Social Good Awards. Oh, awesome. Great. And next year we've got an episode on the Caribbean coming up with speaking to the guy that heads up the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Fantastic. We're yeah. all over it. How good are we We're being? all over it. We're oh. being so hey, look, As I opened up Google to search for a bit of travel news today, um, it had one of those, you know, funny sort of graphics at the top, the sort of uh, The tribute. Google Doodle. Do- hang on, the Google Doodle, I think. Google Doodle. There yep. you go. And it was a woman wearing like an old style leather flying helmet. So I went, okay, here's this. And I've checked her out. And she was an uh, aviation pioneer I'd never heard of before, which, you know, is, you know, women doing anything. It takes a long time to get recognition, right? But her name is Maud and she called herself Loris. So Maud Loris Bonnie. And she was the first woman to fly solo from Australia to England. And she did that in 1933. And other feats that she did as well. She was the first person of any gender to fly from Australia to South Africa. She went from Brisbane to Cape Town. That's a lot of water. Mm, It is. All right. So 1933 and 1937. She did the 33 trip to England in a gypsy moth, which is a tiny biplane, tiny. And then the trip that she did from Brisbane to Cape Town was in another aircraft, which is not a lot bigger either. It's just unbelievable how brave she must have been to do that and how, you know, competent. Oh, incredible. That's all I got. And do you want me to tell you who has trademarked over tourism? Oh, go on. It's a news outlet called Skift. Oh, okay. Skift. I know Skift. Yeah. This was... Um, did they come up with it then, did they? It, no. <laughs> I don't know. Great travel news website. You better zip it, Phil. Don't okay. use the term I over tourism. very smart idea of them to <laughs> trademark that word. Well it done, is. Skift. It is. Now, a reminder to join our Facebook group too. Just search for the World Nomads podcast. We share some behind-the-scenes stuff, including what World Nomads staff have been up to. Recently, Global Programs Marketing Manager Parry climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and there's a great photo on it. Sparks some conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly inspired one of our group members, Ian, to rethink climbing it because his dad did it when he was young many, many years ago. 
We're there to inspire, Phil. Yes, absolutely. No, that wasn't convincing. No, I'm just wondering, what do you mean? Why did pe- rethink- oh, rethinking as in he should oh, do it because Dad did it? Yeah, he, oh, he right. was always going to do was... it because his dad did it. Right. But then there's a picture of Parry who's just done it. Yep. Suddenly it's achievable. You know, she got um, altitude sickness yeah. while she was doing it. So, yeah, and know. fun fact, the toilets are pretty gross on the way up to... <laughs> <laughs> Clay Apney's an outdoor and adventure travel writer. He's kayaked the fjords in Greenland. Yeah, absolutely. And we I actually got it took us a couple of days to even actually get to see the the, the actual ice sheet because we were used to, as we got into the fjords, we were paddling and uh, we, you know, we saw all these chunks of ice and icebergs ranging from, you know, ones the size of buildings and houses, you know, down to the size of cars and even basically like the ice cubes in your glass. Uh, you know, so we were like, and then we, we got to a, a section of the fjord and we took a hike and then we actually got to see the, the large glacier that kind of became part of a, a series of glaciers that formed the large ice sheet that ran like, I think, 1500 miles north of there. So it's a big joint really, isn't it? It's a quite a large place. Yeah, 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 it is. It's the, uh, I guess the, the world's largest island and you know, it's, I had to fly all the way to Europe to get back to Greenland, which is actually on the North American continent. So that was the, <laughs> the beauty of it is it's kind of remote. It's kind of a, uh, you know, I've been to Antarctica as well. And I almost think that it was actually harder to get to Greenland than it was to get to Antarctica. Which is more spectacular? You know, uh, I was actually on an expedition cruise ship to Antarctica. So I, I saw many more people on that trip, even though it was only like maybe 300 people on the on the ship, but when I was in in Greenland, it was like me, uh, a couple other guys, and then our guide. So I saw four people for the for the bulk of our kayaking portion. So I saw less people in Greenland than I saw in uh, Antarctica. It was a it was actually a very unique experience to to be there. And it's just once again, you understand how you have to have a a real sense of survival and kind of just a, a knack for wanting to, to live and thrive in a very almost inhospitable environment. I've got this image inside my head about what a paddling up a field looks like. And I, I steep sided. That's the image I've got. That's the image I've got. Is it like that or are they, are they a bit more open as you're paddling up? Yeah, they're, they're actually pretty, these were pretty open to some degree. Then you got into what like the uh, the fjords of Norway, where it's almost like, you know, high mountain peaks that come straight down into the water. And uh, it was a little bit more open than that. It was, but yet it was still pretty much the the sides of the fjord kind of went up a little bit abruptly. They just weren't as high. Uh, the peaks weren't as high on, on the sides. So I guess it didn't seem as kind of as tall and, you know, kind of rugged, but yet there's no trees in uh, Greenland. Most of it's all shrubbery that grows, you know, really low to the ground due to the to the environment. So yeah, it was more of a uh, almost like a taiga, almost like a, a tundra type right. experience. Pretty, obviously, and wildlife. Yep, uh, seals, caribou. Most of it's uh, a lot of birds. We saw some uh, some eagles, and what I found very unique was that that the water was almost jet black. I guess maybe because of how deep it was or whatever. Then you got like this ice and then you can, you know, this different colored ice, you know, the bluish and then the white. And, you know, so it's a it's a very dramatic landscape. It was like, you know, it almost was kind of eerie, you know, as you're paddling along in this black water, you know, and then you can hear the ice cracking. You're not really, you know, you don't have any uh, other sounds coming in from like, you know, other communities or, you know, 
any any other outside noise. So whatever you're hearing is like the the ice cracking or melting or the ice turning in the water as it's it's changing its form. Were you afraid of ice? Carving and because that can be really dangerous when a big chunk goes in the water. Well, we were we actually could not even get into the opening to that particular fjord where the glacier that was producing all the ice because it was so congested. Uh, but we did take a, a hike to the top of the. We kind of came ashore and then hiked up to the top of this uh, bluff and were able to see the actual uh, the end of the glacier where it's actually calving off. You could hear it, you could see it, and it was pretty dramatic. But then you know, you could see how congested it was all trying to go out like this little bottleneck. And so I guess, you know, as, as it melted or as it, the tide changed, it would kind of allow some of them to kind of get pushed out. And as more ice was being pushed off of the glacier, it would kind of then push more of it out of that that small opening. It was almost a unique experience. And I've seen, you know, the calving in Antarctica, and it was much more wide open as opposed to these narrow Mm. Uh, channels. We know it's pretty remote and there's, you know, not many towns and villages along there. So how do you prepare for, you know, an expedition like that? Well, I come from a kayaking background and uh, I was a, a sea kayaking instructor. So I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a head start ahead of a couple of the, the two guys that were with us and they had, they were kind of newbies to, to that. So of course the, the guide service we went with uh, had a, everything we needed, paddling jackets. They even had the little paddling pogies, the little mitts that you put over your paddle just because of the the water temp. We had the spray skirts to keep any water out of the cockpit because the water uh, itself is, you know, I mean, you could easily get uh, hypothermia really quickly. And, you know, he obviously went over instruction over, hey, if somebody does go in the water, you know, we all go ashore to the quickest point that we can get to immediately after we get the person out of the water, because then we've obviously got to build a fire, uh, get them, you know, heated up, warmed up, get them out of their wet clothes, get them under some dry clothes. Obviously none of that happened. Uh, it was a injury free, risk free, uh, trip. So I've just jumped onto YouTube and found the si- the sound of ice cracking. So let's have a quick listen to this, see what we can hear. It's not in Greenland, it's in uh, Canada, in BC. It's kind of a, it really is. It's because it's almost like you can almost hear a pin drop. And then, you know, you can feel the, or hear the ice as it rolls underneath your, like the smaller pieces as they roll underneath the hull of the kayak. You don't want to paddle too close to the large ones because at any point they could flip and rotate. And, you know, and then if you're too close to them, you either get caught in the wake or you could actually get crushed if you're getting too close to them as they roll over. I've owned kayaks. I think I'll stick to lakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll stick to Manly Cove yeah, in summer. Manly Cove yeah, Manly Cove in summer, exactly. Totally. Clay, can I just say that I love your accent. Of all the American accents, I love that one. And I think, because I'm pretty hopeless at accents, I think I can, can nail it. Oh, God. <laughs> Clay Abney, outdoor oh, and adventure man, travel horrible. writer. Is that is that? Am, am I onto oh, it? Oh, that's horrible. I thought I did that accent really well. Mm. You've been influenced by like Nicolas Cage or Jodie Foster or somebody that you know that tries to over accentuate the, or maybe the Matthew McConaughey. Clay, can you do an Australian accent? <laughs> no, but you know the funny thing is, I lived in Pittsburgh. I don't think I have an Australian accent, but I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, with my wife's job, and about a third of the people there thought I was Australian. No, no not even close. 
I, I know. I, apparently, they don't get out a lot. But <laughs> very, very funny, Clay. Great guy. A link yeah. to his work in show notes. And that wraps up Greenland. Any questions, email podcast at worldnomads.com. Phil, how much do you think you could make from being a travel blogger? How much could I make? Not no, a lot. No. <laughs> how, okay. Well, look, I know there are eye-watering amounts, and we're going to share some tips on how to make money from your travels when we speak with Will Hatton, otherwise known as the Broke Backpacker, in our next episode. Bye. See you then. Bye.